Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. and wherever you may be listening. This is the Man on the Post podcast. Uh, let's hope that this is the Man on the Post podcast anyway, because we've had a couple of technical difficulties before coming on air. But let's just, let's just hit and hope. We're actually going to be active in, make, in getting a uh, podcast out tonight, rather than Chelsea, who were you know, less active than us in their game against Man City today. Let's, let's just go with it. So, joining us uh, for his second appearance on the Man of the Post podcast, all the way from uh, the Netherlands, is James Rowe. James, a good evening to you. Good evening, fellas. Good. And as well, joining James is our good man, Andy Manson. Andy, a good evening to you as well. Matthew, how are you? Good. Right, we'll kick off straight into this then. Uh, James, I'll let you decide. Do you want to dive into Arsenal first, or do you want to wait a little bit longer? Uh, I'd be quite happy to wait a little bit longer if you wanted to maybe start with the very sad news of David Astori. Yeah, uh, I'll admit that I'm not, and I do not follow Italian football at, at all, not even on national or Serie A level. So I'll admit it's sad to lose, you know, a member of the football family at an age of 31. But you're obviously more knowledgeable about this area than me, so I'll I'll open the floor with you. Yeah, okay, that's fine. That's very, very sad news today about the Fiorentina captain David Astori uh, dying in his sleep at the team hotel um, this morning, I believe. And uh, yeah, all the games in Serie A have been cancelled as a mark of respect. It's a massive shock for Italian football and uh, first and foremost his immediate family and, and friends and teammates. And uh, from what I know of him, he had a very... Um, a very established career where he um, managed to play for the national team, scoring in the Confederations Cup against Uruguay as well. And, um, yeah, it's very, very, very sad news indeed. I think in terms of uh, English football, there was uh, a possibility a few years ago that he was very, very close to signing for Southampton. And uh, for, for certain reasons, he remained in Italy, playing for Cagliari and then for Fiorentina. And just very, very sad news. Andy, is there sort of anything you you wish to add to that? Uh, not huge. We know. Uh, obviously, you you have seen that uh, Antonio Conte was asked about that after the the Man City Chelsea match today. Conte obviously managed the the national team for a while, and so you know had much closer dealings with the story. Just reiterated, but I think we're all feeling that you know it's very sad. You know, thirty one is no age at all. Um, yeah, it's just unfortunate that every so often football and sports in general seems to throw up these incidents where, you know, seemingly fit younger men um, just their heart gives up on them. Uh, and it's it's very sad. And, yeah, just, uh, yeah, not much else you can say about that, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no real easy way to segue from that into what we have to talk about next um it's it's arsenal yet again um i think the the debate of wenger in or out is it's long gone i think anyone who is still wenger in at this point their their minds are going to change so it's not worth changing them but i do have two way two ways of attacking it sort of now a week on from our last debate over it and that's Wenger, Arsene Wenger's um, credibility, his standing within the game has sort of been diminished. His legacy has been tarnished, so to speak, as a result of you know what's you know happened the last uh, mainly this year. My question is: assuming that he does go in the summer, 
is he still a big name within management? Like, because years ago, he would have been able to, after he left Arsenal, he would have been able to walk into more or less any job he wanted. Now, is that, is that, still, the, is that still the case? Is he still a big name within management, or is his time sort of gone, so to speak? James, I'll, I'll throw to you first. Uh, I firmly believe that Arsene Wenger will manage after Arsenal. Um, I can see him becoming the Paris Saint-Germain manager due to the fact he's always talked about the potential that Paris has and he's always wanted to to delve into that or, or show his worth within that. And uh, I would be surprised if he doesn't manage PSG before he retires. As an Arsenal fan who was only 12 years old when Arsene Wenger first arrived at the club, uh, we saw many, many good years where things were coasting along and an unbeaten season, league titles, FA Cups. But I think he's been a victim of his own downfall in, first and foremost, having far too much power at the football club, far too much say in things that are actually above his head. For example, sitting on the board to appoint uh, chief executives and um, believing far, far too much in players that are quite simply not good enough to the detriment of Arsenal Football Club. For example, uh, um, Olivier Giroud is a tremendous striker and he's been sacrificed to make way for Aubameyang and Giroud will go on to have a competent career at Chelsea. Uh, Lauren Koscielny, who's never really been I've never been convinced and he's gone on to play more than 250 times for Arsenal. So where does Wenger draw the line in, in receiving the, um, the faith paid back into certain players? Um, I think he would do himself a favour if he was to announce that this is it and, uh, and have the fans um, be able to show some kind of respect uh, towards the end of the season. Going into the Milan game, it's going to be extremely difficult. Milan have so much pedigree. And um, I can't see Arsenal beating them over two legs. And then, should that be the case, you've just got the remainder of the season left. And uh, you would hope for more um, for more impact at board level. But Arsenal don't seem to have the characters at board level to be able to deal with this situation. Not in terms of uh, not just in terms of pulling the trigger, but also in terms of uh, appointing a successor. So it's uh, strange and worrying times at Arsenal at the, at the moment. Yeah, and Andy, I throw the I throw the same question over to to you. Are you com- well? First of all, do you think that this is Arsene's last job? And B, do you think he still has the pull to get a big a big job, or does he have to sort of start over again? Um, I've learned anything about football and some of the managerial appointments that have been made over the last five ten years, just particularly in Britain. <laughs> Uh, then I have absolutely no doubt that Arsene Wenger will get another job. If Alan Pardew can continue to get jobs, and don't get me wrong, I'd, I have a soft spot for Alan Pardew, but he's not a good manager. He continues to get jobs. Arsene Wenger, as much as he's had problems at Arsenal, and I believe he's been there far too long now, is still a big enough name to get a big enough job. I personally don't believe it will be PSG. Um, I think uh, that ship has sailed for him. I think there's a possibility you might see him going to international management, not necessarily with the French national team. You know, it may be that he goes to a kind of lesser light, you know, the way some uh, fairly high-profile managers have done in the past. Um, in terms of his legacy at Arsenal, I feel that if this is 10 years ago, this is a different conversation. Unfortunately, now we're in a very different time period for football, for for society in general. Uh, You need immediate quick fixes. Everything is laid bare um, pretty much through social media and, you know, journalism and and so on. I think this has tarnished his legacy. I think Arsene leaving Arsenal at the end of this season, which I expect he will, is going to be greeted very differently now than it would have been Ten years ago, ten years ago, he would have been rightly revealed as the man who, in a lot of ways, essentially changed English club football. But now, I think it, we've reached the point where people have very short memories nowadays. I think you look at the last what Arsenal have done, particularly in the last five years, which is basically nothing. 
I think, uh, unfortunately, he's he's perhaps um, he has ruined his own legacy. Yeah, and sort of and expanding further from that, I, I, you mentioned you know if he goes to international management, I know there's there's this talk about Pep Guardiola managing Qatar in 2022. I think that would be sort of a, a safe bet. Uh, maybe if Pep's still enjoying his time in Manchester City, who knows? We'll we'll get on to Manchester City later. Um, again, I I personally think that if it were, to have, I'd like to see him give it a go at at a small to mid-sized club. You know, uh, not necessarily maybe in the Premier League, but maybe somewhere abroad. I mean, um, somewhere like uh, I believe he was born in Strasbourg in France, so maybe go back there. Maybe sort of a, a massive homecoming for him, you know, because it's been a thing, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson um, you know, all that talk, all he did at Manchester United, could he do it could he do the same at a small at a small to mid-sized club, or was it because he was back to Man United, obviously he had some stuff with Aberdeen, obviously but the, sort of, the game sort of changed Jose Mourinho as well, to, to, to an extent, uh, Pep Guardiola same thing, you know, he's only really managed the big clubs, could he do it at a smaller club Personally, I think it's going to be France that he goes to after this. Um, I've no idea what their situation is going to be uh, post-World Cup. But if Arsene Wenger's name is there, I can easily see them sort of pushing whoever's in charge aside and saying, right. Especially because I... Because you know what the French are like. They could very easily you know, lose all three games. They, they, have, they have a tendency to do that. But on the subject, sticking with Arsenal, and it's the same sort of question... Are they a, as big a club? You know, are they a tantalising a prospect as they once were? You see them now, 13 points off the Champions League. And what is it, 30-odd, something like that, points off the title. You know, this they're in the Europa League this year. Next year, probably the same, barring them winning the Europa League and going into the Champions League that way. So, Andy, I'll, I'll, go, I'll uh, pass back to you. Is our Arsenal still a big club now? Or do we have to see them as sort of the tier below that? I think I'd perhaps slightly rose-tinted goggles here. I believe they still are a big draw. I think you look at the fact that they have a fantastic stadium. I think you look at the fact that they're not in a huge amount of debt. Admittedly, that has been to Arsenal's detriment, I think, in terms of you know, attracting you know the real big names. I think there are some players there that you can work with. On the downside, you know, I think certainly over the last 10 years, I don't think you can look at Arsenal's youth system in quite the same way that you did. So if it was someone who was coming in who who was looking to work with, with young players, I think that requires a real drastic kind of overhaul of the youth system, perhaps along the lines of how Man City have done it, you know, with, with the likes of Patrick Vieira and so on. Um I think it's still a big club. I think you would still get big name managers looking to take it. The problem for me at the moment is that looking out there, there aren't a huge amount of those big name managers available. Um, and who would necessarily play, I hate using this phrase, the Arsenal way. Um, I think the time for Arsenal to make the change would have been one or two seasons back when Thomas Tuchel was available. Um, I think he would have been a good fit at that point in time. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, Arsenal are still capable of attracting big names, both on the bench and on the field. It's just how many of those people are, are actually available. Yeah, I mean, James, James, I'll throw the same question to you. And you'll have sort of some experience of this with sort of with, with Ajax. You know, Ajax used to be one of the big dominant teams within Europe. But now they hardly do anything in the champ. They hardly do anything in the Champions League. You know, made the Europa League final last year, but subsequently got knocked out of the qualifying rounds this year. So again, have they taken? Not we're keeping it with Arsenal, but same sort of perspective with Ajax. Have Arsenal taken a step back on their global positioning within the world? Uh, I think so. I think they can only blame themselves for not being um, for not being on the money. At board level in looking for a successor, 
having a contingency plan to go forward. I completely agree with Andy as regards to Arsenal's youth system. Years ago, Arsenal used to have like a conveyor belt of players who would not necessarily break through under Arsene Wenger, but would go on to play Premier League football for another club. And now the, the players coming through are very, very sparse. I think that has everything to do with the education that the youth players are receiving in London. If you compare that to the Ajax um, uh, youth policy, I've spoken to a lot of professional players that began their careers at Ajax who now play for different clubs in the Netherlands and also in Europe. And they tell me that it's not just about preparing players on the pitch, it's also about preparing them off the pitch in terms of encouraging them about their education, in terms of being aware of power training and nutritional aspects. So I think Arsenal have a lot to learn in that respect. In terms of identifying a successor, Arsenal have to be ambitious because you have to. the next project has to be sold, and I emphasise the word sold, as a building a project for the future where the new man coming in will have a carte blanche to plant his own ideas and his own mentality onto this new team and starting from a blank canvas. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the, you both, you saw both mentioned the youth system there. And okay, Arsenal, you know, are within London. You know, you think if there's a hotbed of young talent anywhere within the country, it would be London. And again, you said they haven't, you know, there's the likes of Reese Nelson, you know, not, you know, he's there, but he's not really within the first team. Whereas you've got players all the teams all across London. You know, I like, you know, I'm a Fulham fan. We've got Ryan Sessegnon. You know, how he managed to evade the scouting you know, of Arsenal. You know, is you know, how did we pick him up and, and Arsenal didn't? But so, how who do you think should be the man to take Arsenal forward? I know. If, if it were me personally, I would go for Ancelotti. I think safe pair of hands, experience, knows what he's doing, rather than taking a risk. You know, I like Eddie Howe. He's often brought up as the man to replace Arsene Wenger, just like Klopp was a couple of years ago. But I think for the fir- to be the first manager after Arsene Wenger, there needs to be a little bit of stability rather than taking a punt. Similar to what Man United did with, with Sir Alex. You know, they took a punt on David Moyes and it didn't quite work out. Do you think it should be someone like Ancelotti getting the job straight after Wenger or should it be someone to build a project? James, go go to you. Uh, For me, it's about the emphasis of building a project. Um, I really like the style in which Simeone plays. It reminds me of the way Arsenal used to play under George Graham where every single game Simeone has a game plan. His players respect the game plan, try to um, try to carry out that game plan to the best of their ability and have a winning mentality. I can also understand the, um, the course to Ancelotti, who is a very, very promising candidate, in my opinion, as well. If I had my way, it would be between those two. I can understand uh, how well Eddie Howe has done, but Arsenal need, Arsenal need a proven, proven winner is what Arsenal need. Before Arsenal came, before Arsenal came to Arsenal, he'd won league titles in France, he'd won uh, cups in France, and that was enough to prove that he was a winner. And Arsenal need to identify those um, those candidates again, sell the project to them, and let the man have uh, the opportunity to build. In terms of the points about being the person after uh, someone who's been there such a long time, I I personally believe that's turning into a very British point of view. Having studied Dutch managers here in the Netherlands and spoken to them as well, um, they always emphasised the the training they had in terms of being assistants at other clubs before taking on a full-time job uh, in their own right and how much that experience helped them to be their own person. And I think all managers, regardless of their background and what they have to offer, have to show they have the opportunity uh, to build and to go forward. And I, I think that in, in terms of Dutch managers, they would never think of a, of a position not to go for it because of uh, someone who's been there a, lot, long, a long time beforehand, perhaps. Yeah. And Andy, same question to you. Should they go for an established manager or take a risk and build a project? 
I would personally take it as a builder project at this point because I, I personally believe that established manager probably can't do much more than Arsene Wenger has done with the players he has at his disposal. You bring in an established manager, I think they would have to make pretty much the same wholesale changes that our project manager would do. And in my mind, if that's the case, then why not go for the project manager now and see if you can build something? Personally, I don't see this happening. Along the similar lines to Thomas Tuchel, who I thought you know perhaps should have got the job recently, I think um, Nagelman, the Hoffenheim manager, very young, could come in, could probably identify more closely with the kind of modern football player than you know Arsene Wenger can, being you know reasonably in the same kind of age group, um, has shown that he can his teams play good football. Seems to have shown that he can identify some talent. You know Hoffenheim are, have been somewhat of a surprise package in the Bundesliga this season. Um, would imagine he might be available for a bigger move and at the moment, let's be honest, you know Arsenal is still a, a bigger club than Hoffenheim. Um, yeah, I think there's there's potential there for Arsenal to... I mean, let's be honest, you bring in Ancelotti this season for next season, I don't think Ancelotti gets them back into the Champions League. I think, you know, they get the stick with Europa League again. Um, it might attract you a couple of bigger name players, but as Arsenal have proven over recent years, you know that's not necessarily the key to success. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd personally steer clear of the, the established managers at this point and look for someone who you feel can lead Arsenal into the next kind of five, minimum five to ten years. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think uh, you should you know, bring them into the Champions League. I think this this season it's gone. I think that their only way of doing it is to basically pull a Man United from last year, focus everything on the Europa League. You know, even if that means finishing below Burnley, horror of horrors. You know, that's that's really all they have to play for, play for this year. Right, moving on, and you guys, you guys sort of didn't watch the game, but you've sort of got a fair. Manchester City versus Chelsea. Um, a comfortable 1-0 win for Manchester City against a Chelsea team that didn't really look as if they wanted to play. A team very lethargic. There was a point, and it's gone around social media, it's gone around Twitter, where basically David Silva gets the ball, jogs about five yards backwards, and then just stands still, and no one puts any pressure on. And my point is this. We we accept that Man City are the best team in the country. We accept that this could be the start of the dynasty. This could be the start of a dynasty. But what has it come to that at this stage of the season, teams just aren't bothering against 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 Manchester City? You know, Chelsea are still, you know, fighting for fourth place. You know, that they've got. Spurs are five points ahead of them. You're not telling them that they're settling for the Europa League and hoping to, you know, have success next year because they're just so good at it. You know, what does it come to that a team like Chelsea goes to Manchester City and just doesn't bother to turn up? Andy, I'll start with you. So, I mean, I think to speak specifically to Chelsea's point at the moment, I feel like that's probably come off the back of, you know, that's now their fourth loss in the last five league games. Um, they're not in good form uh, the mumblings from Conte have picked up immensely again um, I was surprised he came into this season still Chelsea manager to be honest with you I'll be very surprised if he makes it into next season as Chelsea manager not necessarily because I think uh, Abramovich will look to fire him although that is of course possible um, Conte to me hasn't seemed happy in London uh, with Chelsea since halfway through last season, even when you know they were were kind of romping to the league title. Um, on the wider point about Man City and, and teams, you know, choosing not to play against them. I mean, yes, I understand that, and you know there was a wee spell kind of earlier on the season where. As well, a lot of these kind of teams play that way. There was a couple of teams who found out that if you got at Man City, it actually went out and kind of not necessarily looked to rough them up, but you know, got in their faces a bit, you know, pressed them that you could get to them. Um, 
However, they then started to pick up some wins again where it seemed like that wasn't really the way to go against them either. And I think a lot of it's self-preservation now. Um, football is such a money-driven business. And this is going to sound very old man yells at cloud, so I apologise in advance. But um, every place in that league table counts for a substantial amount of money and relegation of course counts as you know arguably financial disaster we're seeing fewer and fewer cases of teams who go down bouncing straight back up and that's purely because they've got used to a certain level of financial stability that's then not there for them Um, so when they come up against the man cities of the world they'll be thinking goal difference they'll be thinking you know could we possibly squeeze a point um, and at the end of the day for clubs in the middle of the table that could mean an extra 1.5 to £2 million at the end of the season and for the clubs down the bottom it could be the difference between you know staying in the league or you know worst case scenario financial oblivion Yeah, James I'll, James, I'll throw the same question over to you it, should this be the attitude for you know this is a big team you know, going to Manchester City and you know not bothering. You, know, you can accept a team down the bottom struggling for it, but is there should there be a reason for Chelsea to be doing the same? Uh, no, there's no reason at all. Uh, I think it's down to tactics. It's down to motivation. Maybe other players think that uh, Conte is not going to be there next season, so why should they put in the extra effort to impress? I think with Manchester City as well, they're on absolutely fantastic form. And um, I think it's just um, clubs uh, edging their bets, really, and being very, very tentative in their approach. I think it says it says a lot for the league, as Andy rightly says, when they're preserving, even in the terms of, of potential goal difference, to avoid relegation or get the extra um, place in the league in terms of gaining extra prize money. But I think long term, that may damage the competitive nature of the league. If you compare it to... Um, to other leagues such as Italy and Spain and, and, and France. It's about smaller clubs going for Europe. It's about the opportunity to debut, uh, to debut in Europe for the first time. It's not just about uh, avoiding relegation or, or maybe in the cases of, of Spanish teams and, and Italian teams, it's about the smaller teams um, wanting to obtain the glory by winning away in Milan, for example, or, or gaining a positive result in Madrid or Barcelona. So I think it's, um, I think it shows the difference between different leagues. And but I think in the court, in the case of Chelsea today, I think it's um, players realizing that perhaps Conte is not going to be there, so they don't necessarily have to put in the effort they normally would have done. Yeah. I think just quickly, I should also add that. Part of this does come down to the fact that, you know, Conte is an Italian manager. You know, he was a manager who at international level often played five at the back or, or you know, three at the back with two wing backs. But, you know, come on, we know what we're talking about here. Um, and that's the way Italian teams play away from home. It's not great viewing, of course, we know that. You know, we've seen enough of Jose Mourinho over the last couple of years to know that, you know, some of the football that can get played away from home when you're looking not to lose, can be utterly dire. But, um, yeah, in Chelsea's case, I think it's a, a whole mixture of things going on there. And, yeah, again, as James said, I think, you know, to me it seems like a team who've accepted that the current regime probably won't be there next season. You know, Conte will probably be gone. You know, there's talk of the likes of Hazard leaving, Courtois possibly leaving. Um it feels like a transitional season for Chelsea. Yeah, and that brings me excellent, excellently onto my next, onto the next question. You're talking about Chelsea being in transition. I think a lot of teams are sort of in transition. They've had new managers or they're you know, turning over players. And my question is, we're assuming that Manchester City are going to be the team for the next five years or effectively for however long Pep Guardiola decides he wants to stay in Manchester. So my question is, who do you think is the closest? I'm not talking about just, like, you know, it's not as simple as Liverpool just because they're 
you know, the closest by being 18 points off them. Now, who do you think are, you know, that one one X factor away from being the team that could possibly challenge Manchester City on all three slash four fronts next year? Uh, James, I'll, I'll go to you first. I think Manchester United. I think with the signing of Alexis Sanchez, with uh, Romelu Lukaku, with Pogba, with uh, a summer transfer window approaching, someone who's vastly experienced as Mourinho, the pulling power the club has to attract um, to attract the big names. I think with uh, a tweak or two and a, a little bit more of an adventurous streak, I think uh, Manchester United could be the ones to well um, to well challenge Manchester City in the coming seasons. Okay, so we got one vote for Manchester United. Andy, who, who do you think it's going to be? Uh, I actually agree on it being Manchester United, although mine is for slightly different reasons. Uh, assuming that Mourinho stays, I think the style of football Man United play is probably a little easier on his teams in the second half of the season than either Liverpool's or Spurs are, because both Pochettino and Klopp are both known for playing high pressing, constantly badgering the back line in the midfield. And I think it can be borne out over, if you look at Klopp's career and Pochettino's career, that both Liverpool and Spurs and previously Dortmund for Klopp, of course, they fade badly in the last one or two months of the season. Whereas Mourinho's teams do have a tendency to actually improve the further into the season they get. And again, some of the football is, is not great to watch. But it does feel a little easier on his players. Um, for me, you often look at you know Liverpool and, and Spurs uh, in the second half of the season and see the players just looking absolutely knackered by the 70-75 minute stage of a game. So I agree. I think some of the, the signings Man United have made are, are good. I'm not entirely sure Alexis Sanchez is, is quite the signing uh, Man United think they're getting. He's a very good player, but the one thing Arsene Wenger has still always seemed capable of doing is offloading players just before they start to hit the downturn. Um, but some of the other signings, you know, I expect that Pogba will eventually come good. You know, Lukaku can only learn in that kind of environment. Is also learning how to deal with pressure on the biggest stage. Um, yeah, Man, Man United from here are the team okay. who will challenge I personally, I personally think it's going to be Liverpool. I mean, you made some excellent points about the way the Klopp's teams play. And personally, I think it's probably because they're not quite there. Uh, they've always made stupid mistakes. Like, particularly Liverpool. They've always had those stupid results all the way through, like uh, like Swansea away this year, like, uh, like Burnley away last year. They've always had those one or two results over the years. You think, how does a team like that? How does a team like that do it? And that's probably and that's duly because of the de- the, the defence. And I think with Virgil Van Dijk in, add another dominant centre half for next year, they won't be giving up those stupid goals against the likes of Burnley and West Brom and Palace and Swansea and well not West Brom because they won't be in the league, but point stands. Um, so come towards the end of the season, they've got enough of cushion where they'll be able to rest players. During the during things that so they'll be able to sort of go for a lot because you look at that attack. I personally think that attack of, of uh, Salah, Sane, and Firmino, I'd say, is better to watch and I think better than the Manchester City front three. So it's all about can they stop the goals going in at the other end? Because you look because Liverpool have scored more goals than Manchester United, but they've conceded 32. Manchester United have conceded 20 which is as many as Manchester City have conceded. So it's all about getting that defence sorted out that I think is the problem for Liverpool, and I think they will do it next year. I'm not you know, traditional Liverpool fan, oh, it's next year's our year, but I actually do think next year's probably going to be an excellent battle for the top between Liverpool and Manchester City. And Man United the, as well, I'm not ruling them out either. Yeah, the, the concern for me, I agree with what you're saying, I actually think Liverpool on form are utterly irresistible going forward. I think that is a fantastic uh, attack they've got. My concerns with Liverpool are, one, Virgil van Dijk has been a really good signing for them. However, 
Klopp's two signings previous to that were uh, Lovren and Clavan, I think it was. And neither of those... I worry that Klopp maybe isn't the best at identifying that quality centre-back to go alongside Van Dyke, And I still have concerns about Jordan Henderson. Uh, I think he is a decent player. I don't think he's a fantastic player. I think they need another real quality central midfielder who could come in and make the most of that attacking lineup, as you said. Right, so moving on to the discussion number three. Uh, it was going to be uh, regarding Colin and social media that we had sort of off the air last week, but seeing as Colin has decided not to join us, for reasons that I'm sure we'll come out soon, uh, I've called an order and we're going to change it up. And next week is The Old Firm. You know, uh, Sky have built it up as Rivalry Weekend. There's a whole bunch of rivalry games going on. And my question is, with Andy being here so he can act as our expert on it, is Rangers v Celtic, is the old firm still as big as it ever was? Given Rangers had all those years down in the lower leagues, we we had to miss it for a couple of years, Rangers still not, they're getting there slowly, but they're still not the big club that they used to be. You know, obviously it means as much to the supporters of either side, you know. It's their their one game a year that... however many games a year they look forward to. But on a sort of competitive level, is Rangers Celtic as big as it used to be? Andy, obviously I'll start with Andy first. I mean, it's all about perspective really, isn't it? I mean, if in the grand scheme of world football, the old firm derby hasn't been as big as it was for a long time. Um, we're probably talking maybe 15 to 20 years before out before since the old firm derby was what I would consider at its biggest um, in some ways it feels bigger now um, there's there's an extra bit of bite to the rivalry as a Rangers fan it pains me to say this but there are a lot of people out there who do see this uh, version of Rangers as a new club um, Celtic fans have been very uh, quick to throw that in their faces Um Rangers obviously have a chip on their shoulder to prove, no one, we are still that club, and two, we are still the most successful club in Scotland. Um, I do think the bring on 55 titles uh, thing is <laughs> very premature at the moment, although having said that, Celtic haven't been haven't been great this season. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not as big as it was, you know. We will never see an old firm game featuring players of the calibre of Henrik Larsson, Brian Loudrup, Paul Gascoigne, George Cadet, Pierre Van Hoydonk, Giovanni Van Bronckhurst, Andrew Kanchelskis. I, I could go on and on. You know, the late 90s and, and early 2000s were, you know, real kind of prime time for for uh, the Glasgow clubs, as can be evidenced from the fact that, you know, both made the UEFA Cup final in fairly short succession um, I think it's getting there I don't think the difficulties that have happened over the last few years have changed you know the fact that they are two of the most well supported clubs not just in in Britain but arguably across the world you know Celtic Rangers both still have huge supporters club presences in America, in Australia and uh, both parts of Ireland obviously Um so it's getting there. It's definitely not as big as it was, but it, it will still mean as much today as it did to the fans, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So you mentioned about we'll never see the, the world-class players. You know? So are yeah. you saying that the importance and the you know, size of the old firm derby has diminished at the, you know, at the same rate the Scottish football has diminished? It's, for me, it's less about the... It's guys about the importance. Um, I think if you ask any football fans, you know, Celtic Rangers names would still come up um, because they are still seen as big clubs. You know, they both they both have still won European trophies. You know, they both have won, you know, tens of of league titles. You know, it's not just one or two here or there. You know, they've pretty much dominated the, the Scottish football landscape for the last uh, hundred years. 
Um, again, it comes down to the fact that football nowadays is very money-driven, and we're in a situation where you know we are earning substantially less than our counterparts in England and and many other parts of the world. That again falls at the feet of the the SFA and the SFL, uh, SPFL, sorry. Um, with the, the dreadful deal they made with Satanta back in, I can't even remember, 2001, I think it was now. Scottish football, from a monetary point of view, has never really recovered from that deal. Um, it's been it's been difficult. You know, we are a small nation. I realise that's not an excuse that can be used constantly when you look at the likes of Iceland and so on, what they've done in international tournaments recently. But in terms of club football, you know, we like many others, uh, have found ourselves left in the wake of, you know, the real football and superpowers. Uh, James, I'm sort of, you're sort of more of an outsider to this, but, you know, every football fan, as, you know, as Andy mentioned, whatever you say, you know, what are the big rivalries, you know, Celtic Rangers will always come up. But to you, has it sort of gone down when you're rattling them off? Have, has it sort of dropped down the you know the order of importance for you? For me personally, no. Uh, obviously, I'm an outsider looking in, but it's still the two biggest clubs in the, in the entire country with such a rich history with uh, league titles and cups, and it's one of the big rivalries in, in European and world football. And um, it's uh, I agree with Andy; it might not be as um, as as um, like it was before, but when these games come up, you have to uh, you have to enjoy them for what they are. Uh, you can understand Andy's points with the players he just reeled off that used to take part in old firm derbies, and I can tell you from a Dutch perspective when uh, De Kalfakart and uh, Bert Konterman and Arthur Newman speak about their experiences in that game, they speak about it with memories as if it was yesterday in terms of the high tempo and the emotion involved. And I think um, I think it's just about embracing the game as it's coming up and uh, and accepting it for what it is. And it's a massive rivalry in a particular European country and one that has to be respected also. Does the same um, effect, you know, Ajax, as I've said, no, not as big a club as they were so on the global stage a couple of years ago. But I've seen that doesn't that hasn't diminished the importance of what's the big Ajax? It's final, isn't it? Ajax is big, right? Yes. Yeah. So I said, yes. The, the standing of the clubs themselves does that sort of is that the the key thing that you know makes a rivalry big on the outside? The size of the clubs dictate how big uh, how big a rivalry is. Um, I think it also uh, contributes as to how much it means to the supporters. If I can give you an example of Ajax Feyenoord. Um, Ajax Feyenoord, when they play in Amsterdam and Rotterdam, uh, the away fans are not allowed to attend the match. For example, if the game is played in Amsterdam, Feyenoord fans are not allowed to attend. And if the game is played in Rotterdam, Ajax fans are not allowed to attend. The last Ajax final match, which was played with both fans in attendance, was August 2005, because the risks of trouble involved outside the stadium in the inner cities is just too big. And they're even getting to the point where the local mayors of both cities are trying to... Um, to um, to arrange certain meetings to get both groups around the table to find a, an agreement, but it's just got to the stage where it's not possible, which is a massive shame because it's the it's the flagship game, if you like, of the entire league, and it really does take away from the the spectacle of that particular derby. I was lucky enough to um, to experience that game, Ajax final in two thousand and five, final one 2-0 and uh, I'd never seen anything like it. I've seen an awful lot of Ajax matches in, in the Eredivisie and in Europe in all my time here. And even though that game was played many, many years ago, it's still one that I remember quite vividly. Yeah. Andy, just sort of on a quick side, what's your favourite, or what would, what would you consider to be the biggest, or biggest slash most important, clarify whichever way you want, what's your biggest derby in the world? 
in world football. I mean, so as as a as a Rangers fan of you know thirty plus years now, you know it's always going to be the old firm derby for me. Has it been so great in recent years? Obviously, you know Rangers have been on the wrong end of of the results and that for for a number of years now. Um, I always had a soft spot for the Milan derby. Um, I you know grew up in my teenage years, you know, watching football Italy on Channel Four. Uh, Inter Milan were kind of the team I found myself drawn to. Uh, that was the kind of ill-fated season that Dennis Bergkamp was there. You know, the likes of uh, Ruben Souza uh, and so on were there as well. Uh, and that was also at a time where Milan uh, and uh, AC Milan were, you know, utterly dominant in Europe. You know, they'd just come off the back of thrashing Barcelona 4-0 in the European Cup final. Um so yeah, the Milan Derby's always held a, a kind of special place in my heart as well. But yeah, I, as a Rangers fan, it's it's always going to be the old firm. Oh, perfect. James, same question to you. What do you think is the biggest slash most important derby? Strictly derby, because I'm not carrying Real Madrid and Barcelona, because that's not a derby. Uh, my my personal opinion is Boca Juniors River Plate. If you look at the pa- the raw passion that that game. Uh, brings up in both sets of fans the history, the noise, the colour, um, the the hatred between both um, between both sets of fans. It's a derby in every sense of the word. So, in my opinion, that would be um, that would be Boca Juniors River Plate. In my own personal experience, having experienced Arsenal Tottenham. Ajax Feyenoord and the Madrid derby between Atletico and Real Madrid. All three of those games have stayed with me, even though there's been quite some time in between them all, because they all have different facets. In the Madrid derby, it feels like a little bit like a, a big brother against a little brother. Arsenal-Tottenham, due to the Arsenal coming outside of, uh, of North London and being founded in, uh, near Plumstead. And also, I Feyenoord due to the rivalry between Amsterdam and Rotterdam. I, um, I was um, grateful to have experienced all three. Okay, uh, per, still going around the table. My personal is it's always been Galatasaray Fenerbahce for me. More or less on the same level of uh, what you were saying with Boca Juniors and River Plate. It's just the intensity of the intensity of it all is just fascinating to witness as an outsider. It is on my bucket. I, I, don't, I don't know why. But it is on my bucket list to just be in just be in Istanbul on Derby Day. It just seems like one of the craziest places to be. And now this is the part of the show where we still haven't come up with a jingle for it, but I'm going. But I'm calling it. We're going to pass it to the Duchy on the left-hand side and say, James, what's been happening in Holland this week? A very very clever title, Matt. Uh, hats off to you for that. I'm, uh, I think that's very very good. I'm only saying um, that because your the Skype image is on the left hand side. It wouldn't work any other way. If, if no, you well, were, very, the Skype image is to the right of mine. It wouldn't work. Very clever. No, I think that's very clever. Um, the big news this weekend is that um, PSV have extended their lead um, at the top of the Eredivisie to ten points due to the fact they beat FC Utrecht three 0 last night. And Ajax lost in Arnhem against Vitesse. So with, ten, with eight games remaining, the gap is only te, uh, 10 points, which is looking as if the title may well go to Eindhoven. Uh, Sparta Rotterdam beat Arda Den Haag in Rotterdam to move off the foot of the table. So they're now in the relegation playoffs. Uh, on a managerial note, I sang the praises of current uh, Excelsior Rotterdam manager Mitchell van der Gaag last Sunday. He announced this morning that he's going to be leaving the club at the end of the season due to wanting to embrace a new challenge and look to work abroad again. He previously worked uh, in Portugal for Maratimo and Belenenge and Excelsior are looking quite safe at the moment in 12th place in the Eredivisie. Excellent, excellent. We, we keep up with Hollanders with the Dutch football as much as we can. Uh, which means we are out of time unless, uh, Andy, do you have any sort of other further uh, footballing points to bring up? 
No, I think that's that's pretty much covered it. You know, it's, a, it's actually a surprisingly decent time to be a Rangers fan at the moment, which is good because being an Arsenal fan has been a living hell for, for a number of months now. Um, yeah, Rangers going very well. Won in the Scottish Cup quarterfinals today, 4-1 against Falkirk, which puts them through to the semi-finals where they'll actually play uh, Celtic. And, of course, that then leaves the possibility of, you know, I hate to say one of the smaller teams, but, I mean, ultimately that's what they are. Motherwell will play either Aberdeen or Kilmarnock in the other uh, semi-final. So yeah, Scottish Cup's been very good in recent years for you know letting for you know not being Rangers versus Celtic as it was for a long time. There have, have been other clubs who've had opportunities there, and it's it's been it's been good to see. Good and James, any further any further footballing points do you wish to bring up? Uh, yeah, considering we've mentioned Manchester City and Dutch football tonight, I interviewed Manchester City-bound player Philip Sandler, who currently plays for Peck Zwolle. I interviewed him last Friday in Zwolle, and we spoke about his um, his current club and his uh, upcoming move to Manchester. It was very, very interesting to see how the club managed to sell themselves to him and how much he's looking forward to going to Manchester City and uh, embracing the new adventure. Uh, readers can, uh, readers and listeners can um, keep an eye on, on my Twitter feed at James Rowanell and also keep well at World Football Index uh, at WorldFootballIndex.com. Keep an eye on that for the interview to be published in uh, in the coming days, I believe. Excellent. So, with us being out of time, it's just uh, thank you very much for listening. You can follow us on at Man on the Post on Twitter. I assume we have Facebook and other. I'm, I'm hoping we have other Facebook, but for the life of me, no one has told me. So we're just sticking to Twitter at the moment. It's at Man on the Post. And don't forget that if you have any questions or any topics that you want to bring up, just send it through to Twitter, and we'll be sure to talk them through. So until next time, it's goodbye from Andy. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. And always remember to keep your man on the post.